And welcome to the Line Break Podcast. My name is Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Bob Sikora. Hello. Hello. So this week we are uh, doing part two of our discussion of Lead Belly by Tayemba Jess. And uh, uh, again, I will say, if you haven't listened to part one, now is a great time to press pause and go listen to part one. Uh, or if you like to live dangerously, just 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 plow on through. Just keep listening to this episode. We're not going to stop you. We can't stop you, in fact. Like we did with uh, with Beholding by Roske, um, we're trading off episodes, so this is my episode to take the intro and the questions. So, Bob, do the thing you've been doing, and don't talk for a little while. <laughs> Noted, but I was thinking since we are celebrating Tayemba Jess, maybe the way to listen to this is to turn it into a contrapuntal poem and put them both on at the same time, and then listen to one, oh. and then listen to the other. Yeah, I'll just take our audio tracks and just, like, mash them together so that we're not <laughs> having a conversation where just, like, we're contrapunctually. And then the listeners will have to download GarageBand, download the MP3, MP3 files of our of our conversation, and then separate them out manually. Uh, make it official, a contrapuntual podcast is the worst idea I've ever had. <laughs> If we ever start a Patreon, that'll be bonus content. <laughs> Just us talking over each other <laughs> about different things. <laughs> All, right. All right. So I want to frame this conversation a little bit more. We alluded to it last week, but I want to frame it a little bit more about what we were talking about last week. A, a little more than what we were talking about last week with uh, talks about historical research and how that can uh, inform poetry, and why that's so interesting. Um, I really like studying history. I write a lot of history stuff for Cracked, uh, but reading history is kind of tough sometimes. It's it's very dry. Um, being a fiction writer and a poet, history books are not often easy to get through. That's why I write for Cracked and not, say, the biannual journal from Harvard or wherever. But what I really love about poetry or fiction, written with a shot of historical research, is that it captures what it felt like to be in that time. Uh, Instead of like great man theory or this happened, this happened, this happened, what it felt like to be in that time. It's a more emotional, humanized history. We talked a lot last week about how dense the language is in this book, how a lot of these poems are persona poems, and those are definitely writer's tools that serves what I'm talking about. Um, other books that do this are Eve Ewing's 1919, which we've alluded to on the podcast before, way back in season one. It's a poetic account of the city of Chicago during a year of a lot of tension and race riots. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Salman Rushdie famously do this in 100 Years of Solitude and Midnight's Children for Colombia and India, Pakistan, respectively. Um, and a whole host of writers do this with mythology and legends. Sort of like what we were talking about with a previous guest on the show, Laura Villarreal. Myth and legend, of course, is very different from straight-up historical research, but the lines can blur in interesting ways when we get into the poetic realm. Uh, Bobby asked me last week what I knew about Leadbelly before reading this, and I basically said Leadbelly was kind of a legend to me, kind of a mythical person, I didn't know a lot about him. And this book is a, a biographical work and and humanizes him, grounds him, 
grounds the legend in historical reality, but even after reading, I still think of Leadbelly as a legendary figure from an almost mythical time, even though he only died right around the time my parents were born, um, which is kind of a thing about America. The past seems so distant, but it's barely even past. And I think this book really captures that. So that's kind of how I want to frame this week, if that makes any kind of sense. I'm following you, baby. Let's go. Hell yeah. Okay. So before I ask you to ask some questions, I agonized over the two poems. I, this was tough picking two poems, just two poems out of this book to discuss. Um, I feel like we could have done like (laughs) three months on this book. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to give some honorable, honorable mention shout outs, poems I didn't pick that almost made the cut. John Lomax on Seeking Song on page 68. Five Year Sentence on page 73. Lead Belly Writes Home 1934 on page 87. And I'm probably leaving out a whole host of others that I considered, but that was just when I was like, I should start writing down which ones I'm considering talking about. <laughs> well, I mean, like, you know, that's that's pretty classic for any poetry collection that you are really into of just of like, there's just too many. Um, to pick. And I think we've both had this experience of like choosing a poem to talk about for the show and then being like, well, this isn't at all representative enough of what this poet does and what I like about this poet. It shows off this one sliver. Right. Uh, um, but also, you know, I just was checking as you were saying a lot. This is like over 100 pages of poems. Like it is a massive, massive um, book, despite being classically, a, it looks like a slim poetry collection. Right. Um, right. But there's so much here. It's, there's so much here. And I think a function of my agonizing and hesitancy is the fact that we're like, we're just going to do a two-parter on this book rather than what our somewhat standard episode feature is like. I really like this poem. I'm going to talk about why I like this poem. Do you have a poem you like to talk about? <laughs> you know? um, so, so maybe it is a function of like trying to trying to do the whole book and being like, oh, which one am I going to talk about? But I will say that this book just really grabs you. It really grabs you. Um, and we're on week two of talking about it. And I just, I'm still enthralled with it. You know, <laughs> um, so, This uh, is why you always listen to my book recommendations. Always listen to Bob Sikora's <laughs> book recommendations. Always, always, always. All right. Uh, should I read a poem and then you ask me some questions? You read some po- you read a poem, then I ask some questions. Let's That's do it. All right. This is uh, on page 43 of the book. This is Mary on Martha. Let me tell you the difference between me and Sister Martha. When the dead get buried beneath stone and stench, I'll give them my tithe of tears and sweat. Do my time in the land of grief, then leave, asking Jesus to give them peace. Martha, she'll try to change the unchangeable. Stay beside a body, begging God to give it a second chance to breathe like a man. He was a casket full of tune that made danger look like duty. The swampland songster wanted to swallow the world and spit out a rind. To flood our skulls with the weight of loss left coiling in his soul. And if you weren't careful... He made you want to be in his song. Fill the gap between his breaths, the space between his hands, blooming with guitar. 
made you want to forget he was trying to dig his way out of his own grave. And see, that's where Martha and me split ways. Because when that gallows pole, death letter, blues was mud slinging out of his mouth, I knew enough to get out of the way, to watch from my safe distance of common sense. It was all I could do to pray for my sister. Each night she traveled back to the juke, tell her to beware of that black snake moan. It was all I could do. It's a poem. It's even a persona poem. It's another persona poem. I I already am like ready to say some things, but this is your this is your this is yours. So uh, tell me why this poem? Sure, oh, all of the poems in here. <laughs> um, yeah, I I want to I want to get to what you're ready to say, but I do have you know my little sermon I have to give. <laughs> this poem, for all the descriptions of music in this book, which is maybe the hardest thing to do in poetry, like I don't know. I have a lot of trouble describing what music sounds like. This poem really captures what music, especially live music, can do to you. Uh, these are two twin sisters, um, one of whom goes on to marry Leadbelly, and one is describing what I think of as different ways to describe in a harsh world. Uh, Mary is very matter-of-fact, uh, accepts things how they are, and Martha is described as being kind of prone to fantasy, which means she thinks if she prays hard enough, the dead can come back to life and gives her a predilection for appreciating the power of music, um, especially, as I said, live music. There, there is a magic when someone is performing on stage and you're really feeling it. Right. Obviously, Martha's marriage to Belly doesn't have the greatest outcome. We see that later in the book. Uh, we know that from biographical information. Um, but this poem definitely leaves open the question of how to navigate life. Uh, do you fixate on hardships or do you seek out relief? Do you accept reality or do you dream of a better world? Um, and then simply, do you let art cast a spell over you? Um, uh, so, you know, I know there are a lot of issues with, especially the section being called, uh, this is the first poem in a section called Black Girl, comma, Black Girl Ellipses. Um, uh, you know, neither you nor I are the most equipped to talk about the uh, racial or feminist elements of this, but um, I do think it raises a lot of questions about how and why we consume art, which I feel a little bit more comfortable uh, Mm -hmm. talking about. Um, So yeah, that's where I went with it. Who buddy. So you took it places too. Now I'm like, wait, where do I want to talk about this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I, I thought it was funny when I pers- first pulled this back open and looked at it after you had chosen it, I'm thinking a lot lately about kind of the first instincts of a poem when you're writing it. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, and thinking about, I guess essentially thinking about conceit. And this struck me as like my initial thought, which like, you know, I'm talking about a split, split second thought was like, there's kind of a really simple thing going on here. One sister is explaining is trying to explain the difference between herself and sure. her sister. Yeah. Um, and then immediately like just like open that up and be like, that's a really really hard thing to actually do to um, bring things down to this kind of really small level. And then 
stepped back even more and thought about what this is doing in service of the whole project of the book. And again, part of what I, I do think is so marvelous about all this um, is this is a poem that is about the sister, about Martha, because the speaker is literally talking about Martha. Right. Um, it's also about Mary because it's Mary's voice. It's this persona poem mode. Um, it's also very much about Lead Belly and giving us this other perspective yeah. um, of him, you know. And so starting from, I don't know, to me, which seems like a, a great instinct to write a poem, the difference between this and this, the difference between me and this person. Right. Um, because it falls into that great kind of gray space of it is difficult to identify, like, what makes a person them? You know, it's a constellation of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're really spot on there. Cause like, yeah, if you were asked, if you asked me to write a poem about my brother, who's not my twin brother, but you know, I don't know how I distill his personality down into one poem. And then in the next breath, write a poem as, as, as uh, Tayamba does here, write a poem from his perspective, talking about me, like, how do you distill right. that into like, right. um, <laughs> into like a single poem and like, yeah, it seems like it seems a little bit like a sort of facile conceit, but there's a lot of writing work that goes into making it not a facile conceit, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and making it, yeah, like a really interesting characterization and, and language heavy poem. That's, that's, that's really great. And yeah, like you brought up, you start with, I'm just going to write about one twin talking about their other twin. You know, here's a couple of poems about two opposites, you know, how right. easy is that? And it's, it's right. not easy. Yeah. Um, and, and then you, you just pointed back to it of, of, you know, yeah, I, we can say all of that thinking about the instinct of the poem, why the poem, you know, where the poem kind of comes from motivationally. Um, and we haven't even talked about the language, which the language is so great. Yeah. Um, it does, just now you did kind of point me to, that does seem to be a particular Tayyambajess interest is thinking about different personalities in contrast um, to people next to each other and like what that tells us about each of those people. Sure. Um, that seems to be kind of all over this. You know, we talked about it last week um, in the Condor Puddle poem. Um, again, I'm thinking a lot of Olio. But yeah, here we have this poem that, yeah, those first lines let me tell you the difference between me and sister Martha. It tells us right off the bat, here's what we're doing. Yeah, here's the inspo. <laughs> we're going. <laughs> um, and that just, you know, runs me down with language, language that I love. Yeah. Um, a casket full of tune. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, oh. I'm on the next page. I'm on the wrong page. Blues was mud sliding out of his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So much setting imagery in here too. Like mm-hmm. you can tell, there's a lot of delta in this poem. <laughs> um, and and you you are onto something here that I don't know if I've thought about. Probably I definitely have not thought about as much of you, but you know, because um, you're right. This poem is pointing us to um, yeah that that magic of of live music and. The spell is the word you use, you know, puts a spell on you, I have to keep coming back. And it is really funny, as someone who doesn't play music, but who likes music, who's sure. thought a lot about music and read a bunch of, like, 
not interesting or very good music writing. <laughs> sure, um, yeah. It is. It's so hard to actually write about it in a way I think that's interesting or like that someone can connect to. You talked about this, I think it was last week or at least semi-recently with the idea of like, if you're writing about music theory, I'm not going to get it. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and, and how your average music reviewer probably overly leans on lyrics as a way to write about um, an album in particular. Right. Um, but now I'm just rambling. <laughs> no, you're, you're getting, you're, you are getting at something that I want to uh, talk about and I'll, I'll get into a little bit more in the, in the next question, but I want to ask you real quick. Mm-hmm. Do you like going to shows? Do you like going to see live music? <laughs> um, I am the worst person to ask, ask this question to. Second worst behind me, but go ahead. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, I have got, I have taken a lot of heat, um, for my take, uh, that especially just as an older person that I'm like, shows where you're sitting down are kind of great. (laughs) Yes. Shows where you're sitting down are fucking rule. Um, so I have the most contradictory stance on going to shows. Um, uh, our friend, uh, Rafi Velez has described it as, um, in a way I thought was beautiful, being in a band is great, except for everything else about being in a band. <laughs> um, so from a musician's perspective, like loading in the equipment, getting to the venue, booking the venue, dealing mm-hmm. with promoters, dealing with tour managers, dealing with sound guys who are the worst people on earth. Like Nazis are pretty bad, but sound guys, <laughs> um, it's, and then, and then, and then like, this was definitely true of me in my younger years. It's not true of me now because I'm fucking 33, but um, goddamn just being an introvert and being really unsure of myself and feeling like I wasn't cool enough for the scene, not wanting to go to the merch table after the band finished playing and like either sell things or talk to another band. Like it's, it's all just a nightmare. Um, I can't stand it. And then if I go to a big arena show and like, I was too old for mosh pits when I was like 21. Like as soon as I could buy a beer, I was like, don't spill my beer, please. You know, like (laughs) I was an old man well before I graduated college. And all that said, there is a magic to seeing music live. And especially now, and this, this probably says something about my personality too, but now that's been taken away from me during the pandemic, I really miss going to shows. I really miss live music. <laughs> like there is a magic to it. And I sure. have very specific memories of lots of live shows I've gone to. I have right. memories of performances of bands I, whose name I've forgotten, who I only saw once. It was just like, that's, <laughs> that's the best show I've ever been to. And it's two bands that I don't remember the names of uh, somewhere <laughs> in Logan square. <laughs> so. I feel very similarly. Um, you know, you can, take out all of the being in a band parts that make it obnoxious. Um, oh yeah. I was going to wrap that up by saying nowadays, I, I wish I could just stand on the back wall with, with, with my beer and watch the band and then go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I'm, so I'm with you on the, can I sit down? <laughs> and, um, right. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I've, I've come to, and this is absolutely an aging thing, you know, yeah, that the seats are a metaphor more than anything. Right. Is how I think, it's context dependent how much I enjoy going to the show. Sure. Um, you know, I just, there are very few acts that I want to see in a sweaty 
club with a bunch of people just kind of packed up against you. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, at least for someone where most of the music, the most of the shows that I've gone to are dumb indie rock bands, whatever. Right. Right. Um, you know, like that's the only way to kind of see it. Um, and just, ha- you know, have had like those few couple occasions where you're just like, you know, this is type of music where maybe I'm not normal. There was a classical thing in the park a couple weeks ago, you know, yeah, like I don't sure. normally think to go to something like that, but I'm like, man, sitting in the park with just some tunes. Yeah. Hell yeah. Crowded is just so much lovelier at this point. In my life. That's one of my big defenses of uh, the much maligned uh, taste of Chicago um, <laughs> is mm-hmm. I, I love, you know, being able to grab some food and right. then like hanging out in a park while like, that's my preferred way of seeing, say, the roots, you know, <laughs> um, or uh, right. yeah, saw the roots. We saw Chance one year. Mm-hmm. Which one did you and I see together? Was it Chance or was it the roots? Janelle Monae. It was oh Janelle Monae, yeah, yeah. That was that a was great awesome. way to see Janelle Monae because the stage right. was big enough for her whole band, and yeah. she could do like her kind of like uh, being Prince kind of like uh, big pop star thing. But then yeah, if the like you said, if the context is right, if the setting's right, and if the group is right. Yeah, like a, a small, like Beat Kitchen or Shubas is like perfect to me because you can, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a big enough room to where if it's not crowded you can you can just enjoy the music and then if you get if you don't like a band you can just go to the restaurant portion <laughs> and, and like order a drink and like mill about mill about and right. talk to your friends and stuff like that like you have <laughs> options you know but yeah like small yes. little clubs where you're just crammed into one room and and standing nervously against a against a bunch of people. Yeah. I've aged out of that. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, so give me that free music. Right. Give me that outdoor music, you know? And yeah, it just there, I, I think it comes down essentially to everyone trying to make money and it's in a hard business to make money in for the band, for the venue, for the sound guy, as much right. as you hate him. Yeah. As, as, that, as, you know, as everyone I just shit on is, is just trying to do their best and make make a buck. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. yeah. Uh, you know, and as a result, the experience is kind of unbearable yeah. for a lot of these, a lot of the shows that I, in theory, would like to go to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. You have taken us far out of the poem. I've taken us way far out of the poem. Yeah. Um, um, I want you to bring back by talking, talking some, talking some shop, talking, talking some craft. Tell me what is the move in this poem that got you? The move is the uh, metaphor of the third stanza that leads into the fourth, which is a little bit of what we were just talking about. So mm-hmm. the third stanza, Martha, she'll try to change the unchangeable, stand beside a body, begging God to give it a second chance to breathe like a man. Fourth stanza, he, and I'm taking he here to mean lead belly. Same. He was a casket full of tune that made danger look like duty. The swampland songster wanted to swallow the world and spit out a rind. Um, and then it, it goes on for another few lines, but I've already read it. Right. Um, I feel like in those lines, our speaker, uh, Mary, is describing Martha the way she is prone to the kind of spell a musician performer can mm-hmm. put on you. And then the way that I feel like it's really illustrative of how we mythologize like sort of bad, to use a cliche, like bad boy musicians. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, like, like <laughs> I think you and I didn't know a lot about Lead Belly going into this book, but knew he was like 
a guy who lived a rough life, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, you know, like you hear stories about like, I don't know, the Stones or Zeppelin or like Biggie or Wu-Tang and, 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 and you're, you, you know, like, oh, things got crazy after the shows when they were on tour. But, but like, this is like describing like, uh, on a personable level, mm-hmm. like how, how intoxicating and how damaging uh, mm-hmm. this kind of lifestyle can be to not just the performers, but the people around them and forgotten people who we'll, you know, only know from books like this. <laughs> right. Right. Um, Absolutely. And it just, uh, you know, it, there's a cliche of the live fast, die young rock and roll star that I think is like getting kind of blown out and really explored uh, right there in those two stanzas. Um, I love it. I love it. I does not surprise me at all that you would love this poem between the music, the history, um, the little bit of religion that we get there. Oh yeah. There's a bit, yeah. <laughs> you know, literally Jesus is on the other line, but you know, yeah, we're talking about resurrection here. Right. <laughs> uh, this takes us backwards. Um, but I do think it's, it's worth, repeating and, and thinking about a little bit of, of, you know, one of the things that you were saying is remarkable about this book and is a particular ability of poetry within this historical mode, you know, is to flesh out and make real um, something in a way that, you know, yeah, a history book can't do. Right. right? Um, and that's exactly, I think part of, part of what you're saying here, you know, is we have a person who might be kind of forgotten yeah. In both both this Mary and Martha, both Mary and Martha, um, you know, I, I I don't know what the the biography of Ed, Lead Belly says about them, but you know, we do know historically, um, women are written about less, right. um, you know, are given less, you know, time, um, and especially you know, if it's just like the wife of the person is how it's framed, right. you know, and um, who and could yeah, be more giving... forgotten than a black woman in 1930, mm-hmm. you know. Um... It's not a group that society cared about. (laughs) Right. And so we're getting, you know, even if there's probably some imagined detail here, we're, you know, getting this life of them um, that I don't think we really can find anywhere. Um, We're getting a believable glimpse into their mind. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, yeah, history books don't often do. But poems are great at it. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else we need to say about this one? Just stopped short of to flood our skulls with the weight of loss left coiling in his soul. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line, especially with yeah. I think. Let me check the timeline in the back that we talked about uh, last mm-hmm. week. I think this was he met her four years after his father had sold off the last of his family's land to pay for his legal fees. Right. And so, yeah, the um, flooding her skull with the weight, her and her sister's skull with the weight of loss left coiling in his soul, that carries some resonance too, just from like a biographical standpoint. Um, Right. He's already, he's very young at this point and he's already experienced like a ton of pain and is inflicting is too harsh of a word but is inflicting his pain on these these two right these two poor women who are destined to be forgotten kind of thing um and that's just in one line in a stanza that i stopped short <laughs> of when i was reading you know 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, all right, let's take let's take on another poem. Let's take on another poem. We're going to page sixty six. Uh, this is uh, one of the earlier poems we hear from John Lomax, who uh, uh, is the guy responsible for most of Lead Belly's recordings, I believe. Um, okay. This is ethnographer John Lomax speaks of his vocation. This country needs a Columbus like me. I have sighted a dark territory to map, mount, and measure. It's fat, prickly fruit weighted for value and veracity. I stake my claim on the breadth of each black willing to open his mouth and spit out southern legend soiled roots. I will blue the pale ears of Ivy League lecture halls with secrets snatched from between Negro jaws. They seek the primitive man's oracle, covet my careful codification of these ethereal chants born from strife. The way I pen it down in black-on-white page and bid it dance, the feral language of a folk bent and broken as the notes grinding up through marrow and memory. Alrighty. That's a poem. Some change of pace. Change of pace. Feel. It's a little bit of change of yeah. pace. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me why this poem. Well, I feel like there's a there's a shift in the book when we meet Lomax, and uh, I guess specific, specifically when we meet the governor, but especially when mm-hmm. we meet Lomax, and it, it very much becomes, it takes on this different layer of exploitation, how Lead Belly was exploited. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I was tempted by this to do another uh, contrapunctual poem, um, but figured we talked enough about it last week, because there are some great ones. Uh, where Lomax and Leadbelly are going back and forth uh, later in the book. Um, but I picked this poems in terms of just the narrative context. Um, this is another example of how great Tayemba is at characterization, persona poems. Uh, Lomax speaks so frankly and honestly about what his project is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a way that a lot of academia still thinks, but would never dare admit that that's what they're doing. It's an excellent characterization, and right off the bat, again, this is pretty early in our time with Lomax, but we understand that while he might be able to do some good things for Leadbelly, he is not a good person, and he does not care about Leadbelly um, beyond trying to turn a profit off of him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just think that's that's a huge point for the whole book and for the whole story of Leadbelly. Right, right. So we have another persona poem. Yeah. And I guess I feel compelled um, not to put you on the spot here. Sure, sure. Um, but to 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 have a little bit of the the conversation of like shit. I'm losing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, go for it. Uh, I know. I just you know. Um, I think there is an interesting conversation to be had about like what what a persona poem can do um whose voice can you take on whose voice can you not take on um i'm fucked no no, no. see these are these are questions i think about endlessly um because Uh it's stuff i try to do (laughs) right whose voice can you take on and uh uh whose uh 
who is it responsible for you to write for and who is it responsible for you to not write for, to avoid right. writing for? Right. I mentioned earlier with the with the first poem that uh, there's a lot to be said about uh, Mary and Martha, about being a black woman in the 1930s that I didn't feel qualified to talk for, I didn't feel comfortable uh, talking about. Um, that's not to say I haven't thought about those things or learned about those things or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but I approached that poem specifically for this podcast as knowing what I'm comfortable about talking about. Right. Taking that into the questions you're asking, what can we write about? What, what not can we, like there's no law against it. You can write about whatever right. you want. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what's responsible to write about and whose voices are, are we able to take on responsibly and, um, and what kind of work needs to go into being able to take on those voices responsibly. I feel mm-hmm. like a black man writing about a predatory white man timed as well within his rights to take on Lomax's voice and just do whatever he wants with it. <laughs> well, I want to emphasize that I fully agree. This question does not come from a place. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. No, I just realized as you were saying that, I was like, I want to make sure my Right, 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 right. Uh, I mean, because this, this poem is really important. Like you were saying, this is important to the project of fully understanding Lead Belly and his journey and the things he went to, went through, you know, and his relationship with Lomax is important to that. Right. Um, and, and, and just like you were saying, you know, it, I think this is a particularly great way to get into who this person was, what their relationship with Lead Belly was, and to bring out the, the kind of insidious nature um, yeah. of, of that relationship. Absolutely. Um, and, to circle a little bit back about like what we're responsible about writing about, like I don't think that a white writer can't write a black character or a white writer can't write an Asian character or things like that. But yeah, there's a responsibility and this kind of gets at what Lomax is getting to in the poem. Um, part of why we write things is to give voice to people mm-hmm. and, and right. without Lomax lead belly would also be lost to history because Lomax recorded most of his stuff. And Right now we have, you know, recordings of Lead Belly, um, and that's it's just a um, it's just a a thorny bit of complicated stuff we have to navigate. Of like, how do you how do you record art? How do you art, culture, food, anything mm-hmm. we all value as a society without being exploitative? And mm-hmm. um, I think those are thorny questions that we all have to answer all have to ask ourselves on a case by case basis. And, and by doing due research, due diligence, but who Lomax is pretty upfront about not giving a single (laughs) shit about how, how what he's doing affects other people. (laughs) Um, I think I, I, Oh, I I lost one question that you asked one, one thing you were getting at. No, I, I really like the way you're framing this around responsibility I feel like I have at least one memory of um, older writers, for lack of <laughs> more context. We can say older um, writers, and right? people know right. what we're talking uh, about. <laughs> um, and and just like hearing that conversation, just making the connection to 
um, the question of who you can write about, whose voice you can write from, and like trying to link it to censorship, which is just, you know, a, yeah. a classic. It's a, it's such a, it's a reach to get there. Um, you're worrying about the wrong thing. Tired thing about cancel culture is like, yeah. Right, or it's, right. It's like, you get like a 50 year old white writer who's like tenured at a university being like, Oh, so I I can't write a black character now. It's like right. you can, but can you can you talk to a black person first? <laughs> right. No. Um, but I think that's 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 what kind of excites me is because I agree, responsibility is the word. It's you know, you know, what kind of rigor is going into you trying to understand this perspective? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and whether that's research, talking with people, showing it to people, showing it to people that have that identity, you know, and asking them about it. But writing a book from research puts this from historical research, puts this whole new kind of twist on that. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and again, it's very clear that Tyamba just has written all of these persona poems from a place of rigor and a place of a lot of study. Right. Right. Rigor was um, a big word last week and it, it definitely yeah, applies right. this week. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'm just thinking, uh, yeah, I think this one, I would have no second guess of, of taking on this voice. Um, it, Cause it feels like, to say how Lomax is taking advantage of Lead Belly, to try and do it in the third person would, to me, would feel way less effective. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. You know, right? Well, to, do, um, to do it in the third person would be kind of easy to do, but it would right, feel a little one-sided. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and then the way, like later on, just like pages after this, you get this whole run of like contrapuntal poems where it's Lomax and Lead Belly talking, like really brings the untenability of their relationship yeah, together in a really absolutely. interesting way. Um, but this like, this sets all that up, you know, right. Which is why I picked this one instead of one of the controversial <laughs> ones. <that I> really... <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, 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 I guess for me, the question comes back a little bit more to the last poem. You know, I, I think, I don't think either of us has a good, has the answer for this by any means. I think like, no, one, and I don't think there context, is one answer. Yeah. Right. It's very context dependent. You know, but but writing about those sisters um, has this, you know, dissonance of by writing about them, you give them some kind of voice. Right. You 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 give them a memory that more people will know about. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it does also feel like ugh, we're probably talking about two people who didn't have much of a chance. Right. Um, right. To you know do that work on in their own, which is part of. I think the dignity that we hope everyone we want for everybody. Right. Um, it's that, it's that dissonance between like, I don't know. I, I, I guess one thing I like about writing is that it, it does give voice to the voiceless and, and the, the stupid Shakespeare cliche about like immortal or is it Keats? I don't know. One of those old fuckers um, uh, giving, uh, you, you know, granting immortality on the page or whatever the stupid line is you want to grant that kind of dignity to people you care about and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, the less empowered in society and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's just a page and people don't even read books anymore. So, like, you know, like it's great that Mary and Martha have had these pages written about them. It's great that Lomax's uh, uh, white supremacy is exposed, but like, it's not like, this book can't go back in time and change the circumstances of anyone's life. This is you know? true. Right. And we as writers, I think sometimes hope to change the material circumstances 
of people's lives through our writing by inspiring people, by challenging people to think different ways. But like, it's not exactly something you can count on. (laughs) (laughs) Like you can't just write and then pat yourself on the back and be like, I did a good job today. (laughs) I think, you know, I've I've obviously, you know, heard the expression for, you know, give voice the voiceless. Um, And, you know, yeah, I think I have a little bit of, I I recognize the tightrope in this history version of writing about that. Um, yeah, I, I think so much that when I, you know, when I hear that expression, um, you know, the thought is like, well, if that person's alive, they do have a voice. They have a voice. Just maybe, yeah, take a tape recorder not, to them. <laughs> they're maybe not able to amplify it right now. Right. Don't be like Lomax and sign a six-figure book deal off of it. <laughs> like, yeah, I realize as I'm talking, I'm starting to sound a little bit like Lomax, and that's not my intention. <laughs> Uh, maybe that means we should get back into the poem. Let's get back in the poem. <laughs> um, and tell me about this move here. I think you're talking line breaks. Are you talking line breaks? I'm taking line breaks. The uh, title of the show that you're listening to Ooh, right yeah. now, audience at home. <laughs> oh, the move I highlighted has another word that I'm just uncomfortable saying very often. <laughs> um, so okay. it is... Uh, if I'm going to nail it down to one single poetic move, it's the line break and stanza break between I will blue line break, the pale ears of Ivy league lecture halls stanza break with secrets snatched from the Negro from between Negro jaws. Um, first of all, just a lot of like alliteration and just like music in those lines. Uh, mm-hmm. God, just, I mean, every we've said this before, every line he writes is just, incredible yeah but um it's the content of the lines and the format of how they're enjammed that emphasizes how far apart kind of the two americas are you know um Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. white ivy league america and 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 black america um how distant these supposedly enlightened people are far away from the working class Um, Mm -hmm. a similar poem could be written about say contemporary 21st century documentary filmmakers today visiting Angola prison, which comes up in this book um, right. or like farm workers in California, um, you know, migrant workers, um, uh, workers in factories overseas that are being paid at like a dollar a day or whatever. That one line break and one stanza break says so much about a very American problem uh, a very capitalist problem that academia has and that like, like we've been talking about like research based stuff has where you're, you're, you're putting something on display, but um, the audience is very far apart from the people who are harmed kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the, and the artist is very far apart from the people who are harmed. And he just doesn't like three lines and it's like, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I will blue line break. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, the pale ears of Ivy league lecture halls. I think, yeah, just like you said, that does so much work in such a small amount of space. Um, I know you also are just like ready to trash the Ivy league whenever you get. Oh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 uh, there's just so much of like that kind of, little bit of space, concentrated 
just killer moves all over yeah. the place. It's a it's in, a in killer in these poems. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, yeah. It it just this is a book where you know, yeah, it feels like you are seeing someone work on such a high level. Yeah, um, you know, and doing it with you know with subject matter that I think. He's so he's so passionate. He cares about so much. Yeah. Um. And and giving it so much, giving it, uh, giving it life sounds really lame. <laughs> um, I'm about to say something very lame. So yeah, <laughs> giving it life, I think is is uh, is appropriate. Yeah. I. And then, I think we did do the same thing last week, where I was just like, "Well, now I'm out of words." <laughs> well, and sometimes, especially with uh, poetry like this, where it's really dense and really packed in, and and and. A lot of attention to detail is paid. I I have trouble talking about the lines because I always feel like I'm just like the stupidest person in the world being like, isn't alliteration cool? <laughs> <laughs> but like, there's a little bit of a, I didn't think about this until you were just reading. Uh-huh. There's a little bit of a pun there with I will blue the pale ears of I, yeah. and he's a bluesman. And, but like, he doesn't say blues. He doesn't say anything about the blues. He just says, right. I will blue. And there's something, I know it's like, it's an expression like, you know, purple prose or, or, or speaking bluely. Like, I mean, that's like, those are expressions that our grandparents used to describe when someone talks about sex and literature. <laughs> but like, um, there's something interesting about the pun of, I will blue the pale ears of Ivy League lecture halls mm-hmm. without saying the mm-hmm. blues while, you know, explicitly exploiting the, the bluesmen of the Delta South. Um, I, you know, I think, I think you hit it exactly of what I was, ex- what I get excited about with a poet like this is that every time I can stop and think about, wait, did he mean this in right. another way? I know the, the instinct should be yes, he did mean this yeah. in, in, in the multiple ways that you know that I can think of it and probably multiple ways that I'm not even getting it. Right, you right. Know? It's it's the multiple ways I can think of it and the multiple ways I'm not getting it. Um yeah, it reminds me a little bit of uh how uh did you ever hear that story about get out when um people came up with the theory that uh at the end of the movie Rose separates the Fruit Loops from her glass of milk and then eats them separately because it's like keeping the whites and the colors apart. Right. And Jordan Peele was like, "No, I didn't do that intentionally, but that's awesome." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just assume every poet is is like that. Is is um, is uh, is is Jordan Peele both thinking of and not thinking of <laughs> separating the Fruit Loops from the milk. Um, being like, oh, that's a cool move I did, isn't it? <laughs> I, 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 one, I love that. I, I had not heard that story. <laughs> you know um, the scene I'm talking about when she's. I do. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it's funny to, to think of that comparison, um, to poetry. I guess I just remember as like a high schooler, re, you know, having literary analysis of whatever novel or short story or whatever um and having that instinct of like ah, i don't know if we know that he meant to do that right um but i think especially in poetry there are things we do with language that are about that openness and opportunity for there to be multiple meanings or multiple ways that you're playing with that word yeah um you know i i think it is 
a medium that lends itself to more slippage than we even mean. Yeah. Um, which is part of what I love about it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know? It's part of the great thing of the medium. Yeah, for sure. Right. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I, I do think, I think there's no way he wasn't thinking about that word choice of, of blue and not blues. Especially um, the fact that it's at the end of the line. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's calling our attention to it for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, you know, like, I, there's definitely some Twitter joke that's gone around about, you know, poets just trying to make any noun a, a verb. Right. <laughs> it's one of my you favorite know, things to do. It's part of why it's so great. Right. Is, you know, is that we have to entirely rethink how the word is working. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when we put it in a context that it's not supposed to be in. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Man, poetry rules. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how. I, I do unfortunately know how someone could get this book and not think that, but I feel bad for that person. Right. right. <laughs> you know? Well, it, it, um, and it is for how dense all the lines are. It is like a, a book where you, you can just read it as a biography and just like right. blaze through the book. But Absolutely. then it's like, Oh wait, no, I have to go back and explore that a little bit. Yeah. I, I think this is a book I would love um, for a non poetry person to uh, hear the audio version Maybe oh, you know, yeah. hear, like, hear him read a couple poems before you kind of really get into it. Hell yeah. Um, which maybe is true of any book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? um, and, and actually, just as I'm saying that, like, I bet this would be great to like read along with, with the audio. With like an audio book, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, think I'd, I think I'd be into that. I don't do a lot of audio books, but I think I'd be into that for this one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tamba Jess. Tamba Jess, man. <laughs> If you're listening, you have uh, a uh, permanent open spot on this podcast. <laughs> I'm trying to think. His book, his second book, Olio, came out in, oh, come on, Google. You said like oh. 2014, right, last week? I think that's right. Yeah, 2014 or 15. 2016. 16, okay. Which means we've still probably got another five years before his next book. <laughs> sure. <So>. <laughs> 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 Poet George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, but hey, if they're you know, if they're all like this, I'm fine with it. Take as much time uh, as you need, man. If you drop a classic once a decade, like good on you. Right. you know? like, <laughs> take your sweet time. Uh, well, we're at the gushing point. Should we? Uh, should we do NBA? I guess we should talk a little bit about basketball. Let's talk a little bit about basketball. So, thinking about this, the sort of interconnected themes of these two poems and how it's the disconnect between the powerful and the, uh, the people they exploit. So whenever like the NBA has like a labor dispute, it's always framed as millionaires versus billionaires, but right. like it's lost in the conversation that those billionaires come from generational wealth. And most of those millionaires, um, not all of them, but most of those millionaires come from uh, poverty. <laughs> so right. um, there's a disconnect there from players to uh, management. And I was going to ask if you had a favorite time a player really stuck it to management. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought about uh, the Bulls and uh, Jordan constantly like uh, uh, undermining Jerry Krause or mm-hmm. convincing Jerry Reinsdorf to pay him $7 million to play minor league baseball or whatever. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, I thought about the Clippers and Donald Sterling, but I figured that that would be way more your territory than mine. Um, so I finally settled on Craig Hodges. Um, Craig Hodges 
when the uh, the Bulls went to the George H. W. Bush White House after um, winning the championship in ninety one, ninety two, one of those, um, mm-hmm. took a letter to George H. W. Bush um, asking him to just give a shit about poor people, people of color, and different disenfranchised people, and he wore the shiki to the White House when everybody else was wearing suit and ties, and Michael Jordan had famously like said Republicans buy shoes too. Um, And he says in this interview um, or in this, uh, this, this podcast from uh, Dave Zirin um, that quote, one of HW's sons. So either W or Jeb (laughs) uh, thought because he was wearing the dashiki that he was like, Ethiopian or something, so he started talking really loud and slow to him. It was just like, "Hey, man, I'm I'm from America. You can just you can just speak English to me." And just everything Craig Craig Hodges did, uh, mm-hmm. from his outspoken activism to his his urging um, uh, Jordan and Pippen and Phil Jackson to like sit out the finals just so like to get the government to try to pay attention to like. Uh, the AIDS epidemic and the crack, crack epidemic, um, and then getting blackballed from the league board, getting blackballed from the league for it. Um, you know, before Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf was blackballed, before Colin Kaepernick was blackballed, like just like just really just like not being afraid of management and then yeah. suffering from for it, but you know, being unapologetic and not afraid. More people should be talking about how much of a badass Craig Hodges is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I know because it feels like I his name gets brought up every so often. And I'm like, God damn it. I forget about Craig Hodges. You know? Right. He won like, um, I don't know, 700 three-point shootouts or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> he won at least one or two, I think. Ahead of his time in many ways. Ahead of his yeah, time yeah. in many ways, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's hard for me not to see this question and, and immediately go to the Clippers and the Donald Sterling fiasco. Um, I, I, and really one, I more just get upset that so many people enabled this guy for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and like, like you said, the disconnect kind of between, oh, millionaires and billionaires fighting, um, part of that disconnect too, is just like billionaires have a whole lot more money. A billion dollars is so much more than a million (laughs) dollars. Um, you know, yeah. And this is, he's just such a, like just classic example of being the kind of rich where you have to be accountable for nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and nobody feeling in a position where they could say or do anything about it um, is, it just sucks. It sucks so much, everything about it. Yeah. Um, and so his final downfall um, was this audio of what he's of him talking about Magic Johnson, and it was a really weird time. It just that that experience of watching it all happen and being like, "Oh my God, is this finally going to be the thing?" Um, that again, oh, the worst thing that happens, he's forced to sell the team. Right, right. <laughs> and, makes and, a bunch and his of wife money. gets to keep her ownership stakes. <laughs> right. Was there right. a, was there a player or person who stuck out to you? I, I remember Doc Rivers being like, really stepping into like a leadership role with all of that. But also right. I feel like I remember Paul Pierce being pretty cool around that time. Like 
Paul Pierce being pretty outspoken, or I'm, I could be making that up. I, it's hard to both him and Chris Paul definitely. Chris were, Paul, yeah, definitely Chris Paul. Yeah. yeah. Um, I it's it's really easy to say this knowing that that team would not go on and win in the playoffs, and also that that group of players would never go on to win a championship. Sure, yeah. But uh, there's part of me, you know, when it was just being floated around that they might boycott a playoff game. Um, that I was like, that would be so incredible. That would that would have been um, rad. Um, and they, they didn't. They did this thing where they had the warm up jerseys inside out. Yeah. Um, you know, and and like, I'm sure that must be such a difficult decision and thing to go through. Right. Um, and was but, Chris Paul uh, VP of the Players Union at this point, or? I'm not sure. Okay. I mean, he's been involved with you know the union for a while, but. Um, yeah, he's pretty vocally union. And, right. Um, just you know, I, he's one of the most he's one of the easiest players to make fun of for his on court antics. But he is he's an awesome dude. Um, Generally, genuinely seems like a really awesome dude. Yeah, um, you know, and and seems like a good I, dad too. You know? <laughs> I guess yeah, it's hard. I like this question because it's like putting some pressure on some of those moments in basketball history yeah um but yeah it, it's hard to you know like i said to think about the sterling thing it, it's just so hard to to walk away from that and be like wow so this guy got to suck for 30 years i don't even know how long oh yeah um just gets a bunch of money and, like he loses this thing that he apparently cared about but did a really bad job with right. um gets a bunch of money and then just like you know steve balmer who you know as but from a basketball standpoint, <laughs> uh, has done a better job. But it's just like, oh, another even richer person. <laughs> another even <laughs> like richer I, I, person with like no real personal accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not really excited. I'm not going to be excited about this person. Either. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Upgrade, but like also. I think I think your money could go towards a lot of things. Towards a lot of things more important <laughs> than say like threatening to move out of the Staples Center. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah. Personally, believe you should probably be taxed more. Right. That's all. Um, yeah, and the you, you talk about the whole Sterling thing, and to to you and I, it's like common knowledge. But like, I think it was uh, Ramona Shelburne. Or yeah. George Sp- Ramona was the one who did the podcast. Yeah. yeah, that podcast is so worth listening to because, like, yeah. he was like basically a fake it till you make it real estate developer mm-hmm. who was just jealous that Jerry Buss had a team. Yep, and he was like, "We're both asshole real estate developers. Why can't I have an NBA team too?" And so he went and complained to Jerry Buss about it, and then Jerry Buss staked him on a team, which he promptly. Just mismanaged and ran into the ground. He was just, yeah, like yep. you said, allowed to suck for <laughs> 30 or 40 years. And he hasn't suffered very many material consequences from it. He had to sell yes. his team. And right. he's a disgrace, but it's like, it's not like he's the type of person who cares about being a disgrace. He's known he's been That's, a disgrace for forever. He's been a disgrace for a very long time. Yeah, now he just doesn't get to have a basketball team. Oh, canceled so hard. Right, right. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> poor guy. Poor guy. Uh, oh, man. Well, so let's is... get out and do a strike today. Let's go strike. <laughs> let's 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 do some sort of labor protest today. I'm fired up after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, 
suppose when we come home, be responsible in our art. <laughs> That's the theme of the of the podcast we this week. Yeah, yeah. Go out and hate your boss and be responsible in your art. <laughs> you know, and in in all of in both of those areas, do so with some rigor. Do yeah? some with some rigor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, pay attention to the lines that you're saying. <laughs> oh, all right. Welp. <laughs> Welp. <clears throat> That's been an episode. Uh, our music is produced by Brendan Johnson. Our uh, art is done by A.M. Strickland. And we will talk to you guys next week. <laughs>